It has unfortunately always been somewhat of a fringe activity, both in psychology or cognitive science and AI, although it it captures kind of the original motivation for AI as it was started back in the, in the 1950s. I want to look for the deep underlying generalities and see how to get this wide range of phenomena out of the combinations of a small number of ideas. I mean, if you look over the history of AI or probably in science in general, there are always booms uh, when something interesting happens. And they always ask them to it out, but you can never tell when or why or how high. This is Brain Inspired. In the early 1980s, Paul Rosenblum, along with John Laird and the early AI pioneer Alan Newell, developed one of the earliest and best-known cognitive architectures called SOAR. A cognitive architecture, uh, as Paul defines it, is a model of the fixed structures and processes underlying minds. And SOAR was aimed at generating general intelligence. It's been 40 years since then, and Paul is now Professor Emeritus of Computer Science at the University of Southern California, and he doesn't work on SOAR anymore, although SOAR is still alive and well in the hands of his old partner, John Laird. He did go on to develop another cognitive architecture called Sigma, and in the intervening years uh, between those projects, among other things, Paul stepped back and explored how our various scientific uh, domains are related, and how computing itself should be considered a great scientific domain. And that's in his book, On Computing, The Fourth Great Scientific Domain. He also has helped develop the common model of cognition, which is not a cognitive architecture, but instead a, a theoretical model meant to bring together what everyone in the field agrees are the minimal components for a human-like mind. The idea uh, is roughly to create a consensus within the cognitive architecture community for a shared language uh, and framework so that whatever cognitive architecture you work on, you have a basis to compare it to and can communicate effectively among your peers. So all of what I just said and much of what we discuss in this episode can be found in Paul's memoir called From Designing Minds to Mapping Disciplines, My Life as an Architectural Explorer. And that can be found online and I link to it in the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 158. And I will say the memoir is an excellent read um, to learn a lot of science and history, but also to learn about a, a very self-aware and self-reflective scientist. And that would be Paul Rosenblum. Remember, kids, only you can prevent forest fires. And only you can keep this podcast alive by supporting it on Patreon where you'll get full episodes and you can join our Brain Inspired community. Go to braininspired.co to learn more about that. And thank you to my Patreon supporters. All right, here's Paul. I thought we might uh, start with a quote from your, is it a living memoir? Is that how you refer to it? Yes, it is living in the sense that um, I'm, I'm constantly updating as I think of more things. It's actually been submitted to a journal, huh? in which oh. case if it's published, then it will... Uh, it'll get frozen at that point, but so far I keep updating it. The memoir, unless because on the one hand I see um, the title "From Designing Minds to Mapping Disciplines: My Life as an Architectural Explorer," but then uh, it like seems like an alternative 
title might be, uh, oh, I forget something. Oh yeah. The search for insight. Which one are we going with? <laughs> I actually started with that. Oh, you did. <laughs> but uh, decided that was a bit too generic and uh, thought I'd be a little more explicit about the the nature of, of what I've been doing in terms of the kind of topics I've worked on and and my research methodology. Well, I, I really enjoyed uh, the memoir. It reads very easily. And um, I guess as a memoir does, uh, it explores both, you know, your your scientific career, but also some very personal reflections and, you know, personality uh, issue, you know, parts of your personality that um, have shaped your career and your thought process. So I, I highly recommend it to people. Let me, let me uh, start with this quote here. One of the things I've realized about myself over the span of my career is that I, is that I am attracted much more to thought-provoking novelty than to rigorous methodology. Perhaps this makes me inherently pre-scientific or non-scientific, but I get little thrill from either formalization or precision. So that's the quote, and uh, you know, you characterize yourself as is in the title as an explorer, and that you—that essentially what is what you have been doing throughout your career. And you also state in the book um, how throughout your career you, you've kind of been slightly outside the mainstream areas of like you're slightly outside of artificial intelligence, you're slightly outside of uh, cognitive science, and that you've always been been more or less part of a smaller uh, research community. So I, I wanted to ask you about that uh, first. I mean, do you think all these things are related, the exploration aspect and uh, your inherent pre-scientific or non-scientific <laughs> approach? Um, well, that approach fits fairly well with the area in which I have kind of been driven to work, which is to look at architectures of mind or what we call cognitive architectures. Um, it is unfortunately always been somewhat of a fringe activity both in psychology or cognitive science and AI, although it it captures kind of the original motivation for AI as it was started back in the, in the 1950s. Uh, but most people quickly backed off to studying parts of minds where they could study them carefully and where they could measure things and make progress in knowable ways. Um, but I've always cared about the, the big problem and to me, that's been more of an exploration activity than it has been kind of careful experimental activity, though you certainly do experiments at times when you're looking at various parts of it and when you're looking how parts of it fits together and so on. So I think both kind of the way I think and the, and the problem I chose to work on fit together quite naturally. One of the people that uh, you were uh, influenced by and worked with and under is Alan Newell. And, um, you know, he, he wrote the book, Unified Theories of Cognition. You know, he was at the beginning, like you just mentioned, of artificial intelligence. Uh, but then he, you know, went on to get interested in these kinds of cognitive architecture uh, problems. And uh, I, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you, you know, just how, I mean, you write about him in the book. Uh, and so people can always uh, read the memoir, or I guess it's a journal article. I thought it would be a book. No, right now. Well, <laughs> it's 80 pages, a little short for a book, but yeah. Uh, well, we'll see how it ends up. <laughs> anyway, one of my philosophies was to write what you want to write and then figure out how to publish it afterwards. That's right. That's right. And actually, at the end of the uh, book, I think that's one of your, is that one of your 28 maxims? It uh, is. I'd have to, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was really cool, too. Um, that's a lot of maxims, by the way. 
<laughs> and Alan Newell had three maxims, right? So, so <laughs> there might have been more, but those were the ones I captured. Oh, oh, right. Okay. Well, his weren't formalized. You kind of captured those in your own words, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what kind of influence did Alan Newell have on you? I mean, professionally, but also personally. Um. So Alan was kind of an amazing guy. Uh, so he was clearly one of the the founders of both AI and cognitive science. Uh, but he was also one of the founding figures in uh, computer architecture and in human-computer interaction. Uh, he had major books that helped found both of those fields. Um, I first got to know him a bit when I was visiting uh, various universities to try to figure out where to go for graduate school. And so when I then visited Carnegie Mellon, I had a chance to meet with him. And I was just kind of impressed with his whole vision and enthusiasm for, for the path. Uh, that's one of the main reasons I ended up going to, to CMU and uh, trying to work with him. Uh, but in AI, he had this, he had this grand vision of how to build, how to go about building minds. Um, and it started with a number of, of principles that he was heavily involved in, in kind of defining. One of them was the notion of physical symbol systems. Mm -hmm. uh, where a symbol is a pattern that can be combined into expression. So you get this combinatoric nature. They can designate or represent things and they can be interpreted. So you can use them as basis for programs and things like that. So symbol systems are in fact, one way of viewing general purpose computing. Computers are in fact, in general, simple systems of a particular sort. So that's one of the kinds of ideas. There was the notion of production or rule-based systems, which are these local um, reactive bits of memory, uh, which you can add incrementally, uh, and that can execute when the situation is appropriate. And so that was kind of a model for memory. Uh, then there's notion of problem spaces or searches as a way of structuring both kind of decision-making and how one thinks about the consequences of decisions. So projects into the future and looks at alternatives. Um, and then there was ultimately this notion of unified theories of cognition or cognitive architecture as a way of putting these together. And the earliest kind of major architecture I worked on was SOAR. I'd worked on one on my own a little bit earlier than that that I mentioned in the memoir. Zaps, XAPS, Zaps? Uh, Zaps, yeah, XAPS, okay. um, which I got started when I was a visiting grad student in psychology at, at UC San Diego. That's a whole other story. <laughs> But in the early years of SOAR, we, we essentially found ways of putting these ideas of symbol systems and problem spaces and rule systems and a kind of learning um, by practice uh, mechanism that I had developed in my thesis into an architecture that could combine those in all sorts of interesting ways and produce a range of phenomena people hadn't been able to do before within a single system. So that was the kind of thing that's that, that excites me about going after of these kinds of architectures. How can you find a small set of very general mechanisms that when you put them together can produce kind of the range of human-like intelligent behavior? And and before we move on, because we're going to talk about uh, more about SOAR and then later uh, your cognitive architecture, Sigma, uh, but, uh, you know, what... How did Alan affect you personally? Was was he kind of a... Was he a kind of a playful personality, it seems like? <clears throat> um... I, th I think you'd say he was. He was not an overly serious person, though he was totally committed to his work. He worked incredible hours. Um, mm -hmm. 
I forget, he worked like 60, 70, 80 hours a week on the research, and then he'd spend another 30 to 40 hours working on the communities around him. So both the, the research community and the community at Carnegie Mellon. So he was kind of totally committed uh, to the stuff he was doing, but was always cheerful. Uh, he was a happy person. Uh, to me, he was kind of an ideal of, of a researcher in terms of how to work with people, how to work with your communities, how to do your research, how to set large problems and be committed to them over the long term, uh, how to support everyone around him. Um, so to me, he was kind of an inspiration, an ideal, a kind of second father figure. Um, he, got, he clearly got me started on kind of the research path that influenced most of my career. Uh, so he was a, he was a huge influence on my life and a and first uh, kind of an advisor and mentor and then a um, a collaborator and friend over over a number of years afterwards when we continued working on the SOAR project after both John Laird and I had graduated. Was he an explorer like yourself, or would you consider him more of a? Uh, well, what, what, I'll let you describe it. <laughs> I think so. I don't know if he would describe himself that way. He was clearly an innovator. He invented a whole bunch of things that have influenced uh, many scientific fields. Mm. Um, he believed certainly in the scientific method, and we certainly did experiments. Um, <laughs> But much to, much to your chagrin. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> I mean, I was happy to do them. I just realized they didn't give me the joy that certain other things did. Mm. Um, but much of the early phases of AI and cognitive science were exploratory. And even if we didn't say that explicitly, they were the fields were wide open. And there were so many important problems to tackle that there often wasn't time to tie down every loose end in something before you went on to something else. So you're often thinking, trying to think big and thinking about problems no one had thought about before. So it was kind of inherently exploratory. And I, I picked up that as part of the culture, even though by the time I got to the field in the mid seventies, I guess the field had been around for 20 years or so, but AI, cognitive science was still not quite invented, but, um, but there still was this notion of, there's this huge world of intelligence to go out there and discover. And what can we find out about it? What can we formalize? And at least to the extent of being able to create programs that behave that way. Uh, so the kind of formalism we tend to think about was a procedural notion, not creating theorems and proofs, but creating programs that would actually embody the ideas that, that we were considering. Hmm. So you you had, a, uh, I think it was about a 10-year hiatus where you had been working on SOAR, one of the cognitive architectures that we'll discuss here in a second. And then later you came back to uh, begin and work on what uh, became known as Sigma, which uh, was is your newest and ongoing cognitive architecture. Um, but during your 10-year hiatus, you kind of went even grander picture uh, and almost meta-science and looked at theories of computing and how computing relates to other disciplines uh, and then you came up with something called dichotomic um, um, dichotomic maps. Is that right? I think of them as dichotomic, but uh, I'm not dichotomic. sure. Dichotomic. Oh, man. Right. Let me say that over. Uh, yeah. Dich dich dichotomic huh? maps. All right. So maybe we'll come back to those. But, but the interesting thing to me is that cognitive architecture in your little, um, it's not a Venn diagram, it's kind of a nested diagram, is like the most... Uh, minute part of uh, the way that you view 
um, what you have worked on through your career. And yet, you know, this is a, a kind of a unified picture of cognition. So you start from a pretty large scale there. <laughs> um, yeah, so when I, I started that 10-year digression, it, I certainly didn't have any attempt of trying to re-understand computer science or computing more broadly. Um, but I had gotten burned out. Um, I, I didn't see how to make further progress on SOAR in the way I wanted to. And we had been working for a number of years on a military simulation, uh, basically applying SOAR to model pilots and commanders in, in military simulation, uh, which was highly successful, but it took me away from the kind of research that I like to, to do. And one of the things I found out about myself is that I'm really not applications oriented, mm. even though the payoff for that is, is very high. I've never started a company. I've always avoided doing anything beyond a toy application unless I kind of had to. Um, though we as a group decided that was the right thing to do with SOAR, and I think it was the right thing to do with SOAR. Mm. Um, but after that, uh, Herb Shore, who was the executive director of ISI, um, Solid was burnout invited me to work with him on new directions for the Institute. This is the, this is the University of Southern California Information Sciences Institute, um, which essentially involved going across the breadth of computer science and related fields and looking at what the future was to bring and what kind of new areas we ought to get uh, the Institute into. So that had me working in many different areas, everything from technology and the arts to um, um, sensor networks to um, automated building construction. And there was just this wide range of things I was working on and with many different partners. And to me, it felt incoherent in the sense that I couldn't figure out, at least to me, it didn't feel like what brought all this together? Why, why was this a coherent subject of study? And that got me thinking a little bit during those 10 years as to what did they all have in common? And how did they fit together? And it was actually near the end of those 10 years and going on that I started to come up with this notion of, um, at that point, it wasn't a, a dichotomic analysis. It was more what I call the relational model, where I started to look at the relationships between computing and the physical sciences and the life sciences and the social sciences and to itself, and started to understand that there was a core to computing, which had to do with this transformation of information, but that when you related that core to itself in various ways and to these other scientific and engineering disciplines, you could start to understand how the different, how the different kinds of activities I was involved in and ultimately how all of computing fit together in kind of a neat way. And that's sort of what led to, to the book um, on, on computing the fourth great scientific domain. It happened later on as part of that. It was something inspired by uh, Peter Denning a computer scientist up at the uh, Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. But I'd come to the notion that, okay, I was looking at the relationship between computing and these other domains. And I was thinking of them as great scientific domains. They didn't really have a name that there was standard use. Everybody knew the, the physical life and social sciences, but there wasn't a term people used for those kinds of things. But I was using computing and the relational model just as I was using those. And I said, hmm, perhaps computing is one of those. And so that set me out thinking, okay, what is a great scientific domain? And is computing one of those? And that then took me into philosophy of science. Uh, 
Mm. And it's an area in which I've continued to work, though I can't ever quite claim myself as being a professional in that area. But the question of what is a scientific domain um, and what is and what isn't and, and why consider computing. And so I came up with a definition of one um, and which of course fits computing because it had to, uh, <laughs> but fit these other domains as well. And then I started to look at the relationships among these. And that's what led to that particular book and has continued with uh, work in uh, uh, these dichotomic approaches to understanding um, and kind of AI and cognitive science and, um, and complex systems within those fields. So in a sense, you mentioned this nesting of, of kinds of models I've worked on. Though cognitive architecture is the, big, the biggest piece of my life, it's part of AI and cognitive science. Those are bigger than that. And computing is bigger than that. And all of science and engineering is bigger than that. So it's the smallest part of the figure, though it's been the biggest part of my career. So did the, uh, we're, I know that we're all over the place, but that's okay. But did your um, stint, you know, in philosophy of science and then thinking about these bigger picture things, did that have something to do with you reformulating and getting interested again into cognitive architectures? Not directly. So th those 10 years actually led to two efforts that I thought of as being completely distinct at the time. One of them was Sigma, this new cognitive architecture. And this other was the attempt to understand computing via the relational model. Both came out of that period. The Sigma came out of, again, looking more broadly at AI and looking at all the advances at that time being made in this area called probabilistic graphical models. Mm -hmm. thinking, we were missing something in the world of cognitive architectures, but not understanding this world of probabilistic reasoning, reasoning under uncertainty, the kinds of learning you can do and the kinds of reasoning you can do. <clears throat> so Sigma came out of that period by that. Um, although one of the things I understood while doing the book was that I really cared about these deep fundamental understanding about things. And Part of what in, into Sigma was understanding that I didn't feel like I was making progress in cognitive architectures unless I was bringing that same insight to those. So the early years of SOAR had that. There was kind of one form of memory, one form of learning, one way of making decisions. Um, and there's a notion of problem spaces for search and one way of doing reflection. And through that small number of fairly general ideas, you got this huge variety of, of intelligent behaviors coming out. Um, when you couldn't push SOAR any farther, at least I couldn't figure out how to push SOAR any farther in that same paradigm, that's kind of, kind of when I burned out. Oh. Now, John Laird, who along with Alan Newell and me was work, uh, it was John's original thesis. And then I joined with him and Alan. Alan was the advisor of both of us. John continued working on SOAR after I stopped, and he added more memories and learning mechanisms and other mechanisms, which is something I hadn't been willing to consider at the time. Um, partly because even without realizing it, I had this mental framework saying, you can't do that. <laughs> um, whereas John didn't have that framework and so very successfully has improved SOAR in many ways uh, since that point. Um, when I started to think, and it took quite a while to figure out how to do this, how to bring the probabilistic graphical models and sort of like architecture together, I realized this was sort of the second period, like the early days of SOAR. 
that all of a sudden I could see how to bring, again, a small set of ideas together that would be even more prolific in terms of the range of things it would provide than the original sword did. So we, both the book and Sigma have this common notion of, I want to look for the deep underlying generalities mm. and see how to get this wide range of phenomena out of the combinations of a small number of ideas. Um, that, that ended up being common to both. And I didn't wouldn't have realized that if I hadn't worked on the book. And that really helped with Sigma. Oh. Let's back up and just state what a cognitive architecture is, because I don't sure. think that I had ever seen a definition of a cognitive of what a cognitive architecture is. But I just kind of loosely held it in my mind that I kind of know what it is. But but there is a pretty good, pretty clear definition. Well, I don't know if there's a generally accepted definition, actually, okay. I, that I keep in mind. I consider it a, a hypothesis concerning the fixed structures and and processes that define a mind. And for me, it's a mind, whether it's a natural mind or an artificial mind. To most people, cognitive architecture focuses on natural, in fact, human minds. Mm -hmm. So most of the field will tell you that. And then there'll be AGI and AI architectures, which are focused on artificial systems. To me, it's about a mind in general. In fact, that's something that's characterized my thinking all along. I haven't been focused on either human or artificial. I've cared about mind in general, and human and AI are two kinds. And so I look at all the different kinds I can. I haven't looked at animal minds much. That's, okay, that's what I was going to ask. Is but but it is at a human level, yeah. Human human level, or uh, I guess the term we use now is human like. Human like, but human yeah. level is is. Um, emphasizes a different aspect of it. So yeah, that's what a cognitive architecture is. We're looking for what are the basic mechanism processes? How do you fit them together so that you get the range of intelligent behavior coming out of that combination? It's that phrase, uh, fixed structure. I, For some reason, that helped me solidify what a cognitive architecture is and, and be more at ease with it. Uh, so is that the part that you think maybe is not commonly accepted as the definition? Um, so for me, that's the it's, that, that's a key part of it. Fixed structure and minds. Um, to other people, um, to most people in the field, fixed is important. Though people will say, well, there's development as well as learning. Right. Development might slowly change the mind, um, as opposed to evolution, which creates it fixed within an individual. Um, there's another notion, which is that um, so Alan Newell, one of the things he did in the Unified Theories of Cognition is come up with this notion of scale counts in cognition. Right, yeah. And so he looked at different timescales um, from uh, micro and milliseconds to seconds to hours, uh, days, weeks, months, and so on, and developed a set of bands, timescales. Uh, so he had what we call the biological band that ended, I think, at around 100 milliseconds, and then a cognitive band that went from like 100 milliseconds up to a few seconds, and then there was a rational and social band. I may not have maybe remembering that's close, exactly yeah. but so for him, I think the cognitive architecture was at the base of the cognitive band. It's kind of things that happened at around 50 to 100 milliseconds. Um, there's a notion that is also probably due to him, the others may have come up with it early as well that there's a basic cognitive cycle time that's in the range, for him originally it was around 70 milliseconds in something he called the model human processor, mm -hmm. which actually came out of his work in human computer interaction. 
And for us, it's turned into more of a 15 millisecond cycle time for cognitive architectures. So there's a way to think of cognitive architectures as providing the mechanisms that happen at roughly the tens of milliseconds level. Below that, you get into neural networks and other aspects of brain modeling. Above that, you might get into rational things like logic and other kinds of things, uh, which take more time in human cognition. But the cognitive band is sort of the tens of milliseconds up to a few seconds. So you can think of a cognitive architecture as the stuff that supports that particular band. Mm. It's just a different way of thinking about it. Um, we tend to think of those as kind of the same, because when we talk about the mind, we're talking about the cognitive band as opposed to the brain, which is more the biological band. Mm -hmm. But So SOAR started off um, aimed at that cognitive band, that um, 70 or, you know, Allen 70 millisecond kind of time scale. What, uh, I just want you to talk about SOAR a little bit. I, I can't, you know, back in the, uh, at Dartmouth, right? And at the uh, birth of AI, they were going to solve AI within a summer. Um, what was the feeling of, uh, you know, the, you know, looking back, it's almost like right now is the right time for cognitive architectures to be coming back because AI has made so much progress. We've made a lot of progress in cognitive science and neuroscience. Um, but then, you know, looking back, it, it almost looks overly ambitious to try to bring this unified um, architecture to explain uh, and implement cognition. What was the feeling like back then when, when SOAR was being developed? So most of the field, most of the time, considers it overly ambitious. Um, but those of us who are kind of committed to it are always looking at what's the best we can do at this point in time. And the field goes up and down. Most of the time, the field spends looking at particular mechanisms, particular planning or learning or memory or reasoning mechanisms. And they do a lot of very careful uh, development and understanding of all these specialized techniques. Um, and then there are times they get dissatisfied and say, oh, it's time we got to think about putting those together. So there's a time in the 80s, I think it was, maybe early 90s, when the field felt that was important. Um, and so there was a high point for the field then. When we started in the mid to late 70s, there wasn't that much interest in it at that point in the field. There was, I guess you could say, early in the 50s. Um, so where SOAR kind of came from, I mean, so there had been some ideas that Alan and, uh, and Herb Simon and others had developed earlier. Um, by the mid-70s, there was a project at CMU called the Instructable Production System Project. And it was wildly ambitious. The notion is you should be able to take production systems or rule systems and build millions of rules into them, capturing much of human expertise. But you can't do that by hand. It has to be learned. <laughs> and so how do you do that? So what you do is you build a natural language and you talk to the system and it learns from that. So the instructional production system was this production system based on what at that point was the highly efficient version of how you do rule match, which was the most expensive part of the systems. And there was this task environment, which was a model job shop, very simple for the day, but think of it as an early predecessor of, of game environments um, back in the mid seventies. And the idea is that the system IPS would try to solve problems in this domain and you would give it advice and interact with it, it was doing it. And from that, it would learn the rules. Okay. 
he was entirely too ambitious. In fact, as Alan Newell said in his Desire and Diversion talk, it was a classic failure. There was a prospective paper and a retrospective paper and nothing in between. SOAR turned out to be kind of the revenge of IPS. Oh. Um, in John Blair's thesis, they understood, John and he, John and Al understand, understood how to bring together rule systems and problem spaces. So you could get decision-making and rules going together. And then in my thesis, I understood how to bring together rule systems and learning from experience. And then we were able to put all of that together in a version of SOAR that, that combined them. Hmm. And all of a sudden, it, it didn't have language yet. We started working on that a little later. But all of a sudden, it started to have the kinds of capabilities we wanted in IPS, but we had no clue how to do an IPS. And so that was kind of how that occurred at that point in time. I think to Alan, the notion of the unified systems was always important. Mm -hmm. To me, it was always important, but the field went hot and cold on, on the idea. I do agree with you that I believe, and or at least I hope, that we're getting into an era when we'll see interest in them again. We're starting to see that out of the neural network community, the deep learning community, um, where they realize some of the limitations of just having a single neural network. And so for example, systems like AlphaZero, mm -hmm. which um, are, are an AlphaGo before, which beat the human world champion to a bunch of other games, that combines the neural network as a form of memory, along with problem-space search of a particular sort. Um, and so, and there are other examples, of what they call neural Turing machines, where people are trying to combine neural networks with other of the kinds of capabilities we've been more looking, looking at for a long time in AI. Uh, Jan Lacan has come out with some recent editorials and papers about his ideas. He doesn't call it a cognitive architecture, but that's really what it is. Um, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't he call it cognitive architecture? I don't want to speculate, but okay. um, All right. I mean, so people like Jeff Hinton know exactly what cognitive architectures are. He was on my thesis committee, actually. And I knew him since my days as a visiting graduate student at, at UC San Diego. Jan uh, Lacan, I've only met once, I think, very briefly at a workshop in Zurich, but um, I don't think they read our papers. I think the neural network world, new fields often try to create space for themselves by yeah. separating themselves out from earlier ones. And they try not to understand what was going on there. Uh, AI did that when it got started. It separated itself from cybernetics and double E and pattern recognition. It only became decades later that we started to bring them back together. So but I would, at some point we'll bring them all back together. And then you'll, and then your legacy will be sealed. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, how frustrating. How frustrating well, has that just been? Say that was all. That was all wrong. So yeah, it was history, but it was all wrong. Here's the <laughs> right. Way. I mean, right. for Jan, for example, if it's not all differentiable, then it doesn't count. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of stuff we do, I mean, Sigma has some neural network aspects that are differentiable, but not all of it is. And so to him, it doesn't count. I mean, it's it's obvious that eventually, you know, like the specialized deep learning systems are going to need to be put together in an integrated cognitive architecture. Is that, am I missing something or is that obvious? That's obvious to me. Okay. And I think it's become more obvious to some of the players in neural networks, but most of them still work on individual applications. Yeah. Um, maybe they will be inspired 
by the recent success of the generative models, which are showing just the huge ability to do all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, to me, they're kind of uh, the latest best approximation to the subconscious, um, which is one part of the full system. And they will understand that and say, oh, we've done such a good job on this. But if we add this, this, and this, we can get to full. I mean, they're all talking about sentience and consciousness now and so on. So they'll start to realize, oh, if we have these other capabilities, maybe we'll get there. Okay. All right. So let's go back to uh, SOAR, I suppose, before we go down the okay. rabbit hole there, because I want to come back to, to the deep learning um, eventually as well. <clears throat> so so uh, SOAR was a, uh, a solution that um, was the sort of a, uh, oh, what did you call it? Not a uh, revenge. It was not, you didn't use the word revenge. It was, uh, oh, yeah, it was yeah, <laughs> revenge on, on the, on the uh, um, previous classical failure, as Alan Newell, Newell put it. Um, and then you worked on that for uh, a long time with John Laird. And, yeah, about 15 years yeah. uh, with Alan until he died, yeah. You developed um, uh, something called chunking, which you have left off in, in Sigma. Um, uh, and so I don't, maybe, I don't know if you want to describe what chunking is, but anyway, um, you, you and both John Laird um, worked on that um, and Alan until, um, until he passed. Uh, what, so what else is there to say? How, like how far did you get with SOAR that you got so, fr so to the point that you thought you couldn't make uh, any more progress on it? Was it just because the limitation of the single memory function, etc.? So let me start with chunking since, since you're okay, sure. Um, so that came out of some work I did with, uh, with Alan Newell uh, after I returned from UC San Diego. Uh, he, he had signed up to write a paper uh, for, a, for a, a, a chapter in a book, and he wanted to do it on the power law of practice. Um, which was kind of known implicitly, but hadn't been made explicit as far as I know before that. Mm -hmm. It's a general phenomenon which says that um, if you graph the amount of time it takes you to perform a task versus the number of times you've done it, that you get a power law curve. Mm -hmm. Now, power law in the simplest form is the time equals the number of trials to some power. And generally, it's a negative power, small power, so that you get a curve that goes like this. It's, it's like an exponential curve, but slower. Um, so we started by doing a bunch of work trying to establish that you found power law curves everywhere. Uh, whenever you measure human performance, you got a power law curve. And then we started to come up with a theory for what could produce power law curves. And it was Alan's um, intuition to start with the notion of chunking, which traditionally came out of psychology as a way of talking about short-term memory as being chunks of items. Seven plus or minus two was George Miller's classical paper on the topic. The way we eventually developed it, and I developed my thesis, was as a notion of um, combining experiences, essentially. So the idea was, if you're going along fine and you have enough knowledge to do what you want to do, you're just applying the rules you already have to help make decisions. If you run into what we call an impasse, you would step back and reflect. This is one form of what you might think of as part of consciousness. Hmm. But you step back and think about the problems in your own behavior. And you solve those problems. And from that, the idea is you can learn new rules. Then in the future, you could just fire and continue on without having to think hard about it again. Mm -hmm. That's what chunking became essentially, a means of learning new rules by 
um, essentially summarizing this reflective processing you do did when you ran into impasses. And so it turned out that applied sort of all over the place in SOAR. There are a number of different kinds of impasses it could run into. And so you could learn rules that controlled search. You could learn rules that implemented operations of various sorts. You could learn all different kinds of rules. And that was, again, part of the early excitement. Um, as time went on, we, we found more and more things SOAR could do. And we were doing wider and wider ranges of applications from knowledge intensive systems and search-oriented systems to real-time robotic control and, and control of simulated entities. So all of that was going along fine. What I didn't feel like was that the architecture itself was improving. Um, I didn't know what was missing. So that was part of the frustration. <laughs> I knew I couldn't, I knew we weren't there yet, but I didn't know what was missing. Mm. I did a, I had a sabbatical just before I stopped working on solar and I tried to work on emotion. Um, and I realized it was very difficult in SOAR. Um, the only thing I came up with a bit, was a bit of a model, a bit of a model of frustration, which turned out to be extremely uh, appropriate. Sure. <laughs> it was essentially you'd, you'd start reflecting and you'd keep reflecting down to arbitrary levels. You never make any progress. And that was the notion you'd start getting frustrated. Oh, okay. Um, and then that was kind of, kind of when I stopped working on SOAR. It wasn't until then with Sigma, where I started to bring together the probabilistic ideas and the kinds of learning you can get out of that um, and the kinds of reasoning you can get out of that and how that gave you ideas about how to do perception and motor control and how to do visual imagery and all these other kinds of things that I felt like I could make progress again. Now, you mentioned the chunking is not in SOAR and that's perhaps my biggest failure with Sigma to this point. Um, I've tried oh. any number of times over the years to put chunking into SOAR. Sometimes I've tried to look at very narrowly, just as a way of combining uh, rule-based processing, sometimes very broadly as ways of summarizing all of the kinds of things going on when Sigma reflects. Um, but I've never managed to pull it off. It's, it's interesting. Um, is that a, is that, is the, is the challenge because you use probabilistic graphical uh, networks as the sort of ground level implementation beneath Sigma? I haven't been able to articulate exactly what the issue is, but I know that the, the core problem is finding a way to summarize the processing that goes on when you reflect in, in Sigma hmm. as sets of knowledge structures within Sigma. I mean, generalizations of the rules in, in SOAR, which include things like probabilistic graphical models and, and things that are hybrids between them and all these other things. Mm. So there's a particular way that the summarization process happened in SOAR. And I've been trying to mimic or mimic that in some ways in Sigma. And it's just never quite worked out for all sorts of very subtle reasons. Um, unfortunately, I probably finished with Sigma since I've retired. I just don't have what it takes to go back and and pursue that further. So, but yeah, um, but Sig Sigma itself to... is not finished. Uh, Sigma may be finished. Mm -hmm. um, there are some students who may continue doing things on it, but as far as what I can do, it's kind of finished, unfortunately. Um, so there may be an inspiration that hits me or hits someone else, and I just can't resist, or someone can't resist going back and trying to make it happen. But uh, but yeah, that's that's a key kind of learning that I've never managed to get into Sigma. Mm, 
Maybe you need to go to DARPA for another 10 years or something. And then <laughs> that'll do it. But they did a different kind of learning and which did all sorts of additional things, which we couldn't do in SOAR. Although John has found various, has added multiple new mechanisms to deal with, with those kinds of, some of those kinds of learning. So we, we didn't really talk about, and I don't know, we don't need to get in the weeds about it, but we didn't really illustrate um, the actual architecture of SOAR. Uh, and then what, how Sigma, you know, how how different it is and how similar it is. Okay. So the original SOAR, the way I think about it still, I mean, and the way it was sort of until I left the project in the late 90s, um, it's fairly simple conceptually. There's a single long-term memory consisting of rules. Um, there's a working memory, which is short-term memory. And the way things work is that the each rule is a set of conditions and a set of actions. The conditions match to patterns in working memory, which are these little simple structures or trees of symbols, and they generate new structures in working memory. Um, and so the there's a basic memory retrieval cycle of matching and executing rules in parallel, which augment what's in working memory. So perception comes into working memory, and then you can view this memory as elaborating what you know about what you're seeing. Um, so that's a, a core part of the memory, or what we call the knowledge cycle. Um, and that's happening in small numbers of my, uh, milliseconds in human time. Then, so that's the, kind of the, the, the innermost loop. Outside of that is the cognitive cycle, which as we say in humans is running at approximately 50 milliseconds. What happens there is you run the rule memory till exhaustion. So there are no more rules that can fire. So they're firing waves of parallel rules until you've kind of exhausted what you know about the current situation. Part of what you retrieve are what are called preferences. Hmm. In the original SOAR, they were little symbol structures. They say, prefer this operation over that one, or this operation is best in this situation. Later versions of SOAR, there were numeric preferences as well. You could then make a decision, if you could make a decision based on these preferences, you would choose an action to execute, or you'd execute the action or do things like that. Um, if you couldn't choose an action or apply it, that's when you'd reach an impasse. And you'd step back and reflect, and you'd give yourself a whole new space in which to think about that problem of why couldn't you make a decision. Um, and so, and out of sequences of those kinds of things, you'd go off in kinds of search and reasoning. And then once you figured it out, you'd return a result which meant the impasse, you could make a decision, the impasse would go away and new rules would be learned. So that was kind of the essence of, of, of SOAR, the way I thought about it. John has since added uh, two additional long-term memories. He's added a um, visual imagery memory. He's added multiple learning mechanisms uh, for reinforcement learning and for declarative learning and episodic learning. And so it's a much more complex beast than it was back then. But that was kind of the essence of SOAR as I thought about it. And then uh, Sigma has a lot of similarities to SOAR. Um, and then, you know, eventually we're going to talk about uh, what you what uh, is being called the common model of cognition that kind of uh, brings all these principles together in an abstract way. But but what do you see? How is Sigma uh, different and similar to SOAR? What's the main, main difference? So in some sense, the inspiration is similar. I was trying to kind of get by with one or small number of everything. But the kinds of things it has are more general. So the way I think about Sigma um, 
is that it's at least a two-layered architecture. So there's a cognitive architecture, which in some ways is like SOAR. Below that is a graphical architecture, which is based on a generalization of what are called factor graphs, which is a form of these probabilistic graphical models. They're all kind of ultimately due to, to Uta Pearl and his work on, on Bayesian networks. Mm -hmm. uh, factor graphs are, are a very, very general form of these. Um, I got inspired by reading um, a paper out of Double E, which was nominally about things like um, error correction, coding theory and stuff. But mm -hmm. it showed to me, I forget it, unfortunately at the moment, the, 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 the three authors on it, but the breadth of what you could do with factor graphs. And so I started to think about, okay, can I start with a level like those, but use them not only for kind of probabilistic reasoning, but for rule-based reasoning. And ultimately we got to points where we're using them for neural network-like reasoning and other kinds of things. So I built this generalized factor graph representation as a graphical model, and then started to look, okay, how can I build rules? How can I build decision-making? How can I build search um, and learning? All on the basis of these factor graphs and get things that were not only like SOAR's rule memory, but were like the later SOAR's semantic memory or memory for facts where you can give a pattern and retrieve facts that are similar to it. It's episodic memory where it records experiences that you can retrieve in various ways, as well as things that were much more probabilistic um, and things that were hybrids between those mm -hmm. because you had a kind of a deeper understanding of how they all related to each other. So Sigma was kind of built on that intuition. So it is a much more general unified memory model which can do all three kinds of memories SOAR can do, plus it can do neural network memories and other kinds of memories as well. But it still has a decision cycle, though it's now based on all these numbers floating around in these graphs. Um, and it has a sort of like reflection capability, but again, not a sort of like chunking capability. And we found we can use it for perception. You can do both neural network-like perception as well as, as uh, probabilistic graphical model types of perception. Um, I did certain generalizations that generalize sort of over symbols and numbers, where I start with a real number line and then allow discretization of it so that you can get integers and then allow assigning symbols to discrete regions so you can get symbol processing. And so I could get a range of things from symbols to numeric processing. And that made it fairly easy to do things like visual imagery, because I had this underlying n-dimensional uh, numeric space that I could tap into, because you could get, uh, there's essentially a single number line, but you could get cross products of them, so you could get arbitrary numbers of dimensions. So there are all sorts of things I could now do that I couldn't do with, with SOAR originally. And that's again, what kind of had me excited and drove me for the next 10 plus years. This, you know, all that detail that you were just talking about reminds me of, uh, of a couple of your maxims. <laughs> uh, one is that implementation is important to actually, you know, implement the, uh, the architecture, the ideas that you're uh, thinking of. But then uh, I think the one just before that, um, which you mentioned might be in, in somewhat of conflict with the implementation is important is to keep the, the insight is important. The, the, which is kind of a, the big picture is important. Right. How, I mean, how have you done that? Uh, sorry, this is a, a bit of a diversion, but how have you done that when you have to work on these problems of how we're going to implement it, which inevitably must shape how you think about the 
the process itself as well. Um, so virtually, I seem to be able to work at both those levels at once. Um, God, that is fortunate. Many people that are stuck at one level, one level or the other, um, and they to me are somewhat limited in what they can accomplish. I mean, they can be very good at all the details, are very good at high level thinking. But I've always been able to kind of maintain both in mind at the same time, hmm. which let me accomplish what, what I've been able to do. Um, and it had it's it's multiple levels. So there, there was kind of the grand idea of Sigma, but within that there, there were a bunch of smaller ideas which are um visionary in some sense also. Uh, but then there's the hard slogging of how to make all this work. And so uh, I do get a lot, I have gotten a lot of my insights out of out of doing that. Hmm. Some of the original ideas about how this works simply didn't work out. And if I just stuck at a high level, I would not have realized it. And my insights would not have been as deep. Hmm. Um, but when you go down and actually figure out how to all make it work and how to make it all work together, that's sort of, to me, the key challenge in cognitive architectures, not the individual mechanisms, but how do they all smoothly work together to yield through their combination what you're looking for? It's always possible to slap together a bunch of modules hmm. and get something but to get them going generally and elegantly is, is kind of a key challenge for me. So not to belittle any other cognitive architectures, because um, there's this review paper. I know there's like, I don't know how many cognitive architectures there are. It's in the 80s now uh, that are like... Yeah, around 100 or so. I mean, yeah. plus or minus 100. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've had um, Chris Eliasmith uh, on the podcast, and we've talked uh, about his cognitive architecture spawn. I've had Randy mm -hmm. O'Reilly and his cognitive architecture Libra, and those are more on the neural side of things generally. Um, but so I, I would imagine the big three that often get mentioned in the same breath are SOAR, Sigma, and then ACT-R, which was John Anderson's um, psychological cognitive architecture. That's almost right. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, how's it? Tell me I'm wrong. How, how am I wrong? What, what's wrong about There's it? There's only a big two, SOAR and ACT-R. I mean, oh. SOAR is kind of the leading one in in the with the AI focus and ACTAR with the cognitive science focus. Sigma is in the common model because I was one of the leading developers of the common model. Uh -huh. Otherwise, in some of the later papers, they don't always talk about Sigma. To me, Sigma is a synthesis of much of the rest of it. I but see. if you talk, there's really a big two, not a big three. Okay. Well, for me, there's a big three, but not for everyone. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get to talking about the common model, but um, you know, what is the since quote unquote cognitive architectures are outside the mainstream somehow, what is the sense of community within, you know, b between people uh, working on their version of the cognitive architectures? Is it competition? Is it, um, you know, are people trying to synthesize things? Do they get along? Do they all hate each other? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so like any community or any research community, the complex are, are dynamics. I mean, it's full of people with, with egos and ambitions and and things they're trying to accomplish. Um, and it ranges from, I mean, so the big two architectures have had large communities working on them. There are some where it's just a single individual working on their own, sometimes even individuals that's not even in any of the core fields. They just feel they, they understand what intelligence is about. <laughs> and there's kind of everything in between. And there are good relationships and sometimes hard feelings. There are jealousies. I mean, there's everything you can think of that you would expect from, from a community. Um, the common model is, is a bit different in that it's trying to bring people together to get them to agree 
at least find out where they do agree. Mm-hmm. So we'd call it a consensus model. It's trying to, to at least go out initially to folks who work on cognitive architectures and that, okay, what do we as a community agree is true of a human-like cognitive architecture? Where human-like means either human or an AI architecture that adheres somewhat closely to how humans work. So there are some very widely different architectures in AI and AGI. Mm-hmm. There's universal AI, which says there's a single equation that, that produces all of intelligence. Um, but for human-like AI, we thought there was a chance for conjunction rather than just disjunction. Um, and we've been surprised to find out we can get fairly far with that. I mean, it's going kind of slowly at the moment. We're, at the moment, we're working on topics like emotion and metacognition or reflection. Uh, trying to add those to them because the original common model is fairly minimal in a variety of ways, but we were surprised we could get that much agreement across that community. So it it works kind of across the cognitive science and AI people who care about cognitive science community uh, and those interested in architecture. It's not something that the world that looks at individual mechanisms cares about. The neuroscience community doesn't care about it. AGI, we've gotten some rapport with the AGI community on it, uh, people like Ben Gertzel and so on. Um, but what about philosophy? That, Has philosophy embraced it or have they had anything to say about it? Philosophy of mind people? We haven't had a lot of contact with philosophy of mind folks about specifically the things like the common model. Mm-hmm. And I know there's there's a history, uh, people like Daniel Dennett, for example, and, and so on. Um, and there is an interesting philosophy of mind community, but not but so far the common model hasn't really made much contact with philosophy of mind. Well, it is um, pretty minimal, and I'd love to hear the story in a moment of just um, because it, it kind of arose out of a uh, a meeting or a conference. But let, let me just I'm going to list off the five parts of it, um, and then we can go from there. So at the in the center, the hub of it all, the center of it all is is a working memory. Um, component and and this is not a working cognitive architecture. This is an abstract theoretical proposal for how minds are structured and function. Yes. Yeah. So okay. So there's this um, core working memory component. There are two types of long-term uh, memories. One um, w- that builds in uh, your knowledge, your semantic kind of memory or your knowledge, and another is more procedural based, uh, uh, in which skills, skills. Yeah, you learn skills, and then there's perception and there's action, uh, and and. Those the four things are kind of coming out uh, on spokes from the uh, working memory, and which where everything is bound or comes together, I suppose. And then perception and action are connected themselves as well. But that that's a a pretty minimalistic model. But even you, you were surprised that among the cognitive architecture community that this that this model is uh, fairly accepted as a theoretical abstract entity. Right. So the, the, there's a bit more too. There's decisions which don't make it into the figure. We attention. discussed whether, for example, they're just part of the skill memory or whether it's a separate module that should be shown there. There are a number of assumptions that goes that go along with this that try to make it a bit more specific and concrete. But yeah, it's minimal, but still surprising uh, that we could achieve consensus. Because if you look at that paper, for example, that you mentioned, which I think it's, there were 80-something active architectures, but there were over 100 that have been developed over the last four decades. Okay. Um, and you look at how those architectures described, very few of them follow that model. Oh, really? Um, so 
But if you look more deeply at them, you can see them in terms of this model for many of them. So for a number of other architectures, we have mappings of them onto the common model. I see. But the way the common model is expressed came about because, I mean, so the three of us who were, did the first version of it were, again, John and me and Christian Labier, who has worked for many years with John Anderson on, on ACTAR. So it was highly influenced about the way we, so we thought about SOAR and ACTAR and SIGMA. With me, with Sigma, Sigma often pushing them in ways that were uncomfortable because I saw the, these things in a fundamentally different way. So Sigma, for example, doesn't have two long-term memories. Right. But you can build both of those on top of singles, of source, sorry, of Sigma's single long-term memory. Because it's general so in a way. regions yeah. of memory rather than distinct memories themselves. Um, so there were things like that we had to work out. Um, but it started... I mean, the, the first step was actually Christian and I, who I didn't know very well at that point, bemoaning at a meeting that was discussing the next um, international conference on cognitive modeling. And we were both saying, there's all these small specialized conferences, each which captures a small bit of what goes on in cognitive architectures. So ICCM, this conference we were just talking about, really focused on cognitive modeling, human-like things. There was AGI. There's BICA, which is biologically inspired cognitive architectures. There's advances in cognitive systems, which is high level symbolic cognitive architectures. But there wasn't any venue where you could interchange all these different perspectives on the topic. So out of that, we created a, what was called a triple AI symposium on integrated cognition, which Christian and I led. And he, I kind of, I think I probably opened the, 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 the symposium, he closed it. And he summarized his thoughts from it. And his summary was in terms of what he called a standard model mm. of what he saw was common. So at the, at the symposium, we did have people from neural approaches and AGI approaches and cognitive approaches and AI approaches. I can't remember if we had Newman from philosophy or other things. But from what Christian saw, there's a smaller number of things he thought were in common. And so he put it up on a slide as the standard model of the mind. And the thing that shocked us was everyone in the room at the time said, yeah, that seems right. Um, that totally surprised us and gave us the kernel of hope that we could build on that hmm. to do something more substantial. John, who was at the workshop and worked closely with me and New Satan, Christian Well joined us early on. And that led to that paper on the standard model of the mind that appeared in the AI magazine, which later got returned as the common model of cognition. Because so we held two further symposia on this common model idea. The first one was on the standard model of the mind. One of the kinds of pushbacks we got was there was fear because of the notion of the standard model in, in linguistics that we were going to drop down and pose something on the field. So there were folks who were feeling quite threatened by the whole thing. There's mm -hmm. some who still feel threatened and feel like we've left them out. Um, but so one of the things we did as a community was hold a poll and renamed it. Um, we did individual pieces. So standard, common, different alternatives, okay. model, mind, whatever. Um, and we did polls and we ended up with a common model of cognition as the name for what we were doing. Nice. You know, my, my sort of knee-jerk reaction um, in reading about the common model and, and you know learning about this story and how everyone more or less agreed is wondering whether that's due to a bias in the cognitive architecture community 
that of course everyone agrees because we all have the same kind of constructs of what uh, psychologically we're supposed to be doing because we all use the same words for psychology, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have the ontological, psychological categories correct anyway, but that's our common language. So do you think any of it has to do with our, our bias as, you know, or sorry, the, you know, the cognitive architecture community's bias in thinking in, the, in those terms? So that's certainly a possibility. And particularly with respect to the terminology, I would hope, though, that the ideas transcend the terminology. Yeah. And that even if you say we're biased in the terminology, that some of the core ideas hold. But we've been trying to challenge it by um, mapping additional architectures onto it. Mm -hmm. So to see, so we started with sort of the three and what we knew more broadly. But if a wider range of people map on and say, here's what, what it's missing, or here's how you're thinking about it wrong, that provides food for thought. The something we haven't talked about yet that I know you wanted to talk about was the mapping of the common model onto the brain. Mm -hmm. It's another one that is showing us that to some extent we're thinking right about it, whether or not the terminology is the best way of, of thinking about it. So we're hoping to challenge it. Um, ultimately, we hope that anything that's human-like, and again, you have to be careful that you don't say, okay, that didn't map onto it, so it's not human-like, and therefore we don't have to worry about it. Right. So you've got to be careful about these kinds of things. But if we can get the, this, the, the wider community of folks working on human-like architectures to map their architectures onto it, and so we understand how all these things relate, that's again part of the hope for the common knowledge provides kind of an interlingua for understanding the relationships among these models. Mm. That will get beyond the kind of the initial starting point and concerns about whether it's biased because of where it started. Mm. But we'll see how it goes. So with, with that whole effort, we're trying to serve as facilitators rather than leaders. So we started eight working groups and assigned a leader. We got leaders for each of them, which weren't the three of us. Um, unfortunately, they got far enough to produce some papers for the, the second common model workshop, but they each had their own things they were working on, so it kind of died out. So the three of us are taking it back on working with Andrea Stocco as well, and seeing if we can push some things behind the scenes and then bring the community back on hmm. to see if we can get them kind of re-energized. Well, I, I read through uh, a bunch of the papers that um, that you guys, I guess, commissioned. Uh, you know, so, so you put out this common model of cognition bulletin, where basically you're asking other cognitive architecture folks, like you were just saying, to, you know, reflect on their own cognitive architectures and and offer what they think might be missing to the common model of, of cognition. Um, but a lot of them seemed just like advertisements for their own cognitive architectures. I was, I'm one, wondering like what you got out of reading those papers of, of that input. And then maybe we can talk about some of the things that may or may not be missing because a lot of those papers said, well, this is missing and my cognitive architecture has it, you know? Right. Um, so a lot of it is, um, it shouldn't be surprising, so I no. try to uh, be accepting. I mean, the bulletin actually, uh, the common model bulletin is an interesting case in point. So Rob West, uh, who I think is the University of Waterloo in Canada, uh, he's been one of the more active figures in the common model community and cognitive architecture community in general. He's traditionally come out of the ACTAR world. Um, 
he stepped up and volunteered to do that on his own. Oh, so we said, sounds great. Please do it. Um, and so it's, it's trying to be a repository for the papers that get published wherever they are on that are related to the common model. Oh. Um, the papers that came out of those working groups, what we hoped were that they would take a, a look. So they were on topics like emotion and metacognition and language and uh, neural, neuroscience basis. We hope they kind of do a summary of what the issues were for the common model in those particular areas. And some of it ends up being advertisements for individual architectures. Uh, some of what you were talking about, the architecture, and here's what's missing my architecture. Huh? That's actually a good thing, because that was mapping architectures onto the common model. Right. And it was saying what they thought the problems were. And that's some of the kind of feedback we needed to hear. It was from their perspective, but that's perfectly natural and where they have expertise. So, I mean, it's a mindset to work on the common model. And for people working on their individual architectures, it's hard to shift perspective. Of course. And so we're trying to help the field get the perspective and to be able to combine that. I mean, they're not going to shift away from working on the individual architecture, but what we're hoping is, again, they can combine that perspective with the perspective of thinking about the common model and kind of essentially do those two kinds of things in parallel. But that would I, be kind of an ideal world. But it, again, you know, just, <laughs> I was kind of frustrated reading a lot of the papers because it felt like a lot of people weren't willing to play that game, right? They're, they only wanted to stay in their own world and talk about their own thing. So I, I can, use, can use one example I, I've, because I've had him on the uh, podcast, like Steven Grossberg and his uh, adaptive resonance theory. You know, his entry read like any of his other entries. Not, you know, uh, he's been largely influential and, and adaptive resonance theory has is really old and it's done a lot of really cool stuff. But there was no connection to the common model of cognition that I could see. And that was the the case for a lot of the different um, entries, I suppose, or papers. But did you, uh, you know, what did you gain from reading those? Was there a common theme that you've, you're thinking, oh, maybe this is one of the important things like affect motivation, et cetera, that we should add? It would be nice if we could get more people. I mean, so Andrea Stocco is, is a good example. He's someone else who grew up to some extent in the ACT-R community. He's got more of the neuroscience perspective. He's at the University of Washington. Hmm. Um, but he's totally bought into the common model perspective. And so we invited him to join us to bring additional perspective in and to bring a smart kind of younger person into kind of the core people group of people thinking about this. Um, and it just was completely natural for him to think in this fashion. Hmm. And for some people it is, and other, for other people it just isn't. And it may, excuse me, it may never be. So what we try to get from people is what we can. We try to enculturate them as, as, as possible um, and hope that things will grow in some, in some kind of natural fashion. Um, I won't say it's not frustrating at times, but... Um, to me, it's just the natural order of things. And so you do your best given the nature of, of everyone you're working with. I'll highlight that you said enculturate and not indoctrinate there, So which, no. which is a major distinction. Well, um, I'll just ask, you know, because, because, you know, there are a bunch of things thrown out that the common model must be missing. Uh, but what, what are your thoughts on consciousness, subjective experience? Is that, you know, is that an important part? Well, so the problem with consciousness is no one knows what they're talking 
talking about. The one uh, problem with consciousness. <laughs> right. Right. The one problem with consciousness is that no one knows, knows what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, when you read literature that mentions consciousness or metacognition or reflection, there are many different kinds of things people are talking sure. about. And so I say one of the things we are talking about among the four of us is metacognition and reflection, which is one aspect of, I think, of the, the full world of what people talk about with consciousness. It's it's not um, the notion of phenomena. It's not quite the right word. Phenomenology? But, um, yeah. Because um, to me, that's still mysticism, much of that. Um, but it is this notion of including the sense of self, the model of self, mm-hmm. the ability to reflect on what you're thinking. Um, so it's a set of concrete capabilities that we think are part of what goes by the term consciousness, that we think are in fact missing from the common model at this point, but exist in some of the architectures, both SOAR and SIGMA have aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Other architectures certainly have aspects of it as well. So we know it's missing. We knew it was missing at the beginning. We just didn't think there was a a consensus. So as you said, the common models abstract was also deliberately incomplete because mm-hmm. we're only looking to include parts that there is a consensus on. And so we erred on the on the side of incompleteness rather than trying to force um, consensus where there wasn't any. But absolutely that emotion. Um, a lot of people in AI think emotion is this epiphenomenal thing you don't need to worry about. Uh, there are folks in psychology who thinks it's the center of everything. Right. Um, I think those of us working on the common model actually believe it is terribly important for cognition. I mean, I've referred to it as the wisdom of evolution. Um, It provides forcing functions for us to do things in certain ways that we don't want to necessarily do, Mm. but evolution has decided is wise for us. Now, that wisdom is very coarse, and so it often steers us wrong, not often, but sometimes. But to me, it's... I mean, it involves physiology, it involves thought, um, involves the architecture. Emotions change how we think, they change how we behave. Most of the work on emotion in AI is what I call cold emotion. It's all reading about emotion. So it works just as fine thinking about other people's emotion as it does about yourself. It's all reasoning about it. And then there's emotional, I mean, physiological stuff where clearly things are changing in how your body works. But... Again, as an architectural person, the part I care about most is how does the architecture sense emotional states and how does its functionality change as a a function of that? So when you're angry, you think differently. It's not just a symbol in your working memory that you're angry. And it's not just chemicals. It actually changes how you think. So how does the architecture understand that state? And what does that actually change about how it operates? Mm -hmm. Those to me are kind of like the central things about emotion. Not everyone agrees with me about that, of course, but that's the kind of stuff I'm pushing when we talk about emotion in the uh, um, in the common model. We actually held up an on a, a virtual workshop on the topic, uh, got a lot of good input, and got some consensus at the end of that, uh, which again was surprising but fun. And right now we're trying to just build on that consensus to come up with a more concrete and more elaborated proposal that we can go back to the community to talk about. This is kind of an aside, but I was going to ask you, um, you know, given your interest in computing as the fourth great discipline, um, domain, yeah. domain, sorry, 
Um, you know, since just, just going off of what you were talking about with emotion and physiology, do you think of the mind as uh, all computational or is there something else to minds? It depends on what you mean by computational. Um, okay, we can say Turing computable. Well, to, uh, let's say, well, I'll let you, I'll let you actually, instead of pin you into a corner. Uh, is it all computations all the way down? So, I mean, there are people that have very narrow notions of what it means for something to be computational. Okay. So, for example, they limit to that to simple processing. And when you talk about numeric stuff, they think you're not talking about computation any longer, even though computers, of course, do computation. And in fact, it's all grounded in digital processing on, on computers. Um, there are theories like digital physics, which hypothesize that the whole universe is is basically a giant computer. Now, mm -hmm. of course, that's terribly controversial and not at all established. So there's the possibility that everything is is computational at its base. Um, I don't rule out analog computation as part of the world of computation as well. When you're talking about human minds and human bodies, there's clearly I mean, electrical and chemical and uh, there may be quantum things. Some people, there are folks who want to always push intelligence into the things we don't understand. Right. Quantum is one of the favorite aspects of that right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But of course, there's quantum computation. So maybe we'll understand that in terms of the form of computation. Um, so I almost don't care whether you call chemical processing computation. Okay. I mean, it's an interesting scientific question as to whether ultimately that's grounded in computation. I do believe that chemical signals matter in thinking. Um, they're at a pretty low level, but pervasive um, level. Um, whether they're all captured by the kinds of things, I mean, we can do pervasive things computationally as well. Whether we captured the effects of those chemical signals is a whole separate question. My guess is we haven't. And that when you talk about emotions, that's part of clearly what's going on. You have to understand how to capture the kind of pervasive, low-level effects that happen from that kind of thing. Let me see how to phrase this. So, on the one hand, uh, in real brains, we've you know learned that it's a really highly integrative system, um, and there's a lot of recurrence and interaction. Uh, we've also learned that you know due to sort of a systems neuroscience effect using neuromodulators, it can switch these. Um, circuits into different regimes of behavior, right? So that, um, and we've also learned that um, cognitive functions are multiply realizable. Uh, but are, are these kinds of principles that are coming out of neuroscience and, uh, and computer science, are, th are those part of the common model, um, sort of the backbone and infrastructure? And sorry to ask another question on top of it. How do you think about the modularity of both cognitive architectures and the common model um, with respect to what we, what we quote unquote, uh, are, are discovering a, more and more about brains, that it's it's more integrative and interactive than the the strict modularity that we used to think. So, in some sense, I'm the wrong person to answer that question because neuroscience is a fairly large blind spot for me. Um, the brain, I've never. You think I would be interested in the brain, but I was never that interested. I would in the brain. think so. In the mind. The brain yeah. was this messy biological thing, and I never liked biology. <laughs> um, so it's always been a large blind spot for me. And it's just something I've had to accept. It was for Alan also. 
And, and it actually made more sense for him than for me, because in the early days of AI, what was going into symbolic AOS, so far from what people were understanding neuroscience, that there was just not a lot of room to talk. Yeah. Uh, now with cognitive neuroscience, the world is, it's a very different world. Um, but Christian and more so Andre in the common model world are much more up on that kind of thing than I am. Um, so they bring a general background. I mean, so ACTAR had earlier been mapped onto the brain and, right. and he'd worked with, with Randall O'Reilly on SAL, which is a combination of ACTAR and Libra. Um, so there was those kinds of connections and Andreas is more deeply rooted in that world. Many of the kinds of general things you are talking about from neuroscience where I can't say are explicitly in the common model. Um, to some extent, Sigma might reflect them more than than the common model. Because of because, the generality, yeah, of the different, right. kind, yeah. It says the module boundaries in the common model aren't quite as real as we make them seem in the common model, that they are just different regimes or different portions of a, a broader, more general memory. Um, that may, So the graphical architecture might be more like the brain and then even Sigma's cognitive architecture is still more like it because it only effectively has a one long-term memory. Hmm. The divergence into two in the common model and three into SOAR happened kind of above the level of the cognitive model, of cognitive architecture in Sigma. So some of that may be reflected and hopefully we'll see more of that coming out as time goes on. I'm really hoping that the stuff that, that Andrea Stocco is doing um, in mapping Sigma onto I'd say at the macro level of brain of, of functional circuits in the brain yeah. and the communication patterns among those circuits um, that will intrigue some of the neuroscience community. And so we'll be able to see more interaction of that sort. Can, can you let's let's before we move on, can you describe that? This is um, the first author is Andreas Stocco, and it's comparing predictions made from the common model uh, to predictions made from other types of kind of connective um, connectome and functional uh, network models um, that are uh, sort of popular. I mean, it, it tested it against like a few uh, different versions of that. Um, maybe you can just describe a little bit more what what happened and and um, and where the common model fares. Of course, <laughs> sure, I'll I'll try. But again, Andrea yeah, yeah. is the sure. expert on all of this. So you mentioned kind of the basic um, components. In the common model, there's a long-term memory, a working memory, uh, and um, perception and, and motor modules. And they all kind of connect through that working memory. So it hypothesis a particular, you could say, connectome between those modules. So what Andrea did, and you could say it built on uh, earlier what had been done with ACTAR, he mapped the modules in the common model onto functional circuits in the brain. They're not quite brain regions, but they are functional circuits. And then looked at the human connectome data to ask, okay, how do those different functional circuits communicate? And how does that compare to the connections we have in the common model? And what he turned up was that in fact, the common model approach provided a much better model, at least for the seven or so domains of the human connectome tasks that he looked at. Then you got from the traditional hub and spoke and hierarchical models from neuroscience. And that was kind of really, it was completely unexpected for us. We didn't think the common model that's abstract and incomplete that would have necessarily anything to do with the, the brain. Hmm. But you showed that, in fact, there was this really neat macro level connection. And then it might tell neuroscience some, then it might 
be able to provide feedback to the common model from more of what's being learned in neuroscience. So that's essentially what's going on. And he applied some kind of interesting techniques for being able to establish that these kinds of connections were a better model than what people were traditionally looking at. Not, uh, not to beat a dead horse at all, but going back to the question of bias, right? The, the kinds of tasks that we run in labs to come up with these functional um, circuits, um, it, using the psychological terms that we use, do you think there's any particular issue with, you know, testing working memory, you know, a very specific time working memory task in the lab, and then voila, there's a working memory circuit. And since the common model has a working memory module, it, it maps really well onto this, but it assume it's, it's up in some sense could be putting the carrot before the whole, the cart before, <laughs> I don't remember the phrase and so, uh, eating its own, uh, a snake eating its own tail, right? Because it defined the things to test in the lab that it is purporting to explain. Right. I mean, so you raised the the whole humongous issue of the ecological validity of psychological experimentation. Thank you. I could have said um, it much faster, but thank you. Yeah, th thanks for doing that for me. And I can't say we have any additional solution than the than the field as a whole have, but but yes, it is potentially vulnerable to those same kinds of critiques. Mm. Okay, fair enough. What do you think of the current boom of deep learning? I, I know that some of the cognitive architectures are incorporating deep learning networks. But as you're, you know, talking just earlier, the deep learning world is, is sort of taking this cognitive architecture, um, I don't know if it's inspiration, but a, approach in some sense and starting to piece together these various narrow networks and to work towards something more general. So what is your broad overview or, or thoughts? Okay. So as an older person, I'm <laughs> viewing... Um, as entertainment to some extent. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I like I mean, that. I try to, I mean, as, as the person, as the kind of person they're often railing against, I could get very defensive about it. And there are some folks in our community who do. Um, but to me, it's, it's part of the course. It's the standard operating procedure. So very community that for many years felt suppressed. Mm. Uh, there's the Minsky paper book and early results, which kind of showed that the simplest versions of these models couldn't do what people thought they could. And that effectively killed off the field for, for a decade, except for people like Grossberg and others who stuck with and, and Jeff Hinton yeah. and others. So they had a large chip on their shoulder about, I mean, Jeff has even talked about how Alan Newell and Herb Simon misdirected the field for a long time. I think he's completely inappropriate in what he's saying in those kinds of things. But mm. Um, but I understand the chip they have on their shoulder. Um, so I'm watching it from this perspective, seeing AI was like that in its infancy. It was separating itself out from everything else. And it was wildly ambitious and completely over-optimistic. And, um, and that's just completely natural when all of a sudden you're at the point where there's stuff you've been working on, you see, oh, it can do all this stuff. And so they're pushed on by their success, which is completely natural. So all the criticisms of them are accurate, but they're completely understandable as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. And they have gotten way beyond, I thought they would be able to, with their current set of very simple second technology. Hmm. I mean, if you look over the history of, of AI or probably in science in general, there are always booms. Uh, when something interesting happens, 
And they always ask them to it out, but you can never tell when or why or how high. Um, and so those, when people ask me, I say, yeah, it's gonna ask them to it. I just can't tell, I can't answer those questions. And it turns out they've asked them to it at a much higher level than I ever would have expected. I mean, I mean, they might not have even reached an asymptote. Right, right. General models are doing right now. It's just, I don't understand how they could possibly do what they're doing, even though I understand what the technology is actually doing. Um, you don't so think just with like, such compute and such huge volumes of data that it, uh, and it's just making those statistical correlations and going for it? I understand all of that, yeah. but I wouldn't have thought that just doing that would yield. So I played with ChatGPT, I'm uh -huh. sure many people have. It just shouldn't be my model of of large amounts of data and statistical correlations and prediction and transformers and whatever else they're using. I just don't see how it accomplishes it. So there's a bit, this big gap in my mind um, where it's just doing too good a job, even with all its limitations. Hmm. You know it's getting things wrong, and it know and you know it doesn't know when it's getting things wrong. Right. And you know it's I mean it's shallow and it's all these other limitations, but it's still incredible. And I just, it's like magic. Um, do, do you think so, that in any of our, like one interpretation of that is that, wow, it is, a, you know, let's say a, a large language model that generates, you know, really rich right. text and is very impressive. One interpretation is, wow, it's like almost as great as us. But another interpretation is, oh, maybe our language is not uh, that impressive after all. Like that it's not the height of cognition or something. So, I mean, I think the secret really is that I mean, in generating a language model, they're looking at text describing everything we know. Yeah. And so implicitly in the language model includes aspects of everything we know, or almost everything. And so there's a way it's a summary of all knowledge in the way the web is, but in a different form. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that it coherent it can coherently, at a larger scale than individual sentences, produce useful answers is just kind of incredible. Mm. But still, as I said, I think it's a... It's the next great model of the subconscious, uh, which means it's missing whole aspects that are required for, for full intelligence. And in, in order to counteract the weaknesses they have, which the subconscious has as well. Hmm. Um, and I think there are a variety of members of the community that are coming to realize that, and they're looking for alternatives. Whether they will find a fully differentiable version like the on wants, or there will be something else um, is, is an open question. Um, but I'm sure they will be pushed in the direction of, of adding more of the capabilities as time, as time goes by. Because even though I'm sure they are, are enjoying and pushing as hard as they can on all the applications of what they've got, they're also looking at what the limitations are and how to overcome them. Yeah. You uh, uh, wrote in your memoir, I believe you wrote about that in, in your memoir, unless I'm misremembering and I saw it in an interview or something, uh, that you get a lot more satisfaction and intellectual uh, inspiration out of going to AGI conferences rather than, uh, you know, psychology or computer science or any of those other fields that you're kind of a part of. Uh, I just want to uh, ask you about that and maybe you can just um, reflect on why that is. Well, so they're, they're clearly quite different. I mean, for people who don't know them, the AGI conferences, at least traditionally, were kind of all over the place. Um, Lots of people spouting big ideas, um, often with little support. That's different than these days? I haven't been recently because I'm, okay. I mean, the pandemic and I'm limited. But um, my guess is it's that there's a, a bit more 
rigor now, but I, I don't know if that's actually true. As opposed to a traditional conference, which, which, which matters most is the rigor and much less whether you're saying anything interesting. Um, so if you've done your experiments properly and it's something new, even though it doesn't matter, you can get accepted usually. Mm. And to me, as I mentioned, what I care most about are ideas that get me thinking in new ways. And the next incremental idea just leaves me flat. So that's why I've often enjoyed the AGI conferences. There are people thinking big. Um, they may, of course, be totally wrong, um, but they get me thinking. And that's really what I care about in, at a conference. I'm going to go someplace and get me get where people will get me thinking in a different way than I normally do. You think other people go to... Actually, that will happen at regular conferences as well. Uh, there are very groundbreaking where published at regular conferences. But the, the vast majority is just incremental progress on existing topics. So it's really suited to your uh, personality and desire as an explorer, I suppose, to um, to seek that sort of inspiration rather than necessarily the answer to the next question that you're asking or something. Right. Uh, say most of my colleagues in the academic cognitive science world um, consider AGI abhorrent. Right. Well, that's why I was asking. Yeah. A bunch of loose cannons that have no methodology whatsoever and just spout off whatever they want to say. Um, yeah. I'll say, yep, it's true, but I still find them interesting. And they dress different, a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> You know what? Before I let you go, I just want—I would be amiss if I didn't mention one of the things I really appreciated that you wrote about. Um, and I, I don't need to ask you a question about it. I just appreciated your self-realization that at different points in your life, you have come to appreciate other facets of science and um, being been able to take on board different ways of thinking. And I think that that is an underappreciated um, realization that more people should be. Uh, should take on in their own lives and kind of more accept who they are at the time in that part of their life. I completely agree with that. I mean, I wrote it down partly because it seems like I've never seen that mentioned anywhere. Yeah. And it clearly describes my life. And I assume it describes most people's lives. I think so. But, yeah. but it's never kind of articulated. And it helps people understand themselves and to accept how they are at that point and think about, well, I might be different in the future. Um, and sort of just look forward to see what happens. Yeah, so it, it's a beautiful way to think about it. Okay, Paul, I've, ta I've taken you long enough. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for being on. Okay, and thank you again. Okay, bye. I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you. Thank you for your support. See you next time.